This is episode two of Musicology with the Eagle podcast. Enjoy the show. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Musicology with the Eagle, and I'm your host, the Eagle. I hope you've all had a great week, and I definitely have myself, seeing the feedback and response to the first episode of this podcast. And I just want to thank you for your comments and your support. It really means a lot to me, and it's giving me the motivation to continue doing this on a weekly basis. And I think once we've established a regular schedule, we can start playing around with the format and trying some new ideas. But before we get into this week's episode, I want to highlight an issue that is worth mentioning amongst music fans, and it's that of just musical elitism and snobbery. Now, this week, I listened to a song by LCD Sound System called Losing My Edge. Now, the song pokes fun at two types of music fans that are just insufferable. It's the old-timer snob who's been around the block and seen everything, and then there's the up-and-coming precocious know-it-all. Both are not spared from lead singer James Murphy's biting lyrics. As a record producer and DJ, he aligned himself with the old-timer camp, with lines such as, I was at the first can show in Cologne, or I woke up naked on the beach in Ibiza in 1988. We all know I was there. I've never been wrong. And as the song title suggests, I'm losing my edge to the internet seekers who can tell me every member of every good group from 1962 to 1978. But he's not done yet. After he's finished boasting and trying to reassert his credentials, he tackles the modern scenester with lines such as, I heard that you and your band have sold your guitars and bought turntables. I heard that you and your band have sold your turntables and bought guitars. And ends with, you don't know what you really want. It's clearly pointing to two dangerous mentalities as a music fan. And look, it's obviously impossible to have been able to attend every amazing gig or festival or concert over the years, particularly due to age or location. I mean, some artists were in their prime when I was a child or before I was born. There's not much one can do about that. And also people nowadays don't have enough time or resources to be able to collect stuff and treat every aspect of their life as an obsession. It's asking a bit much. No matter how cool we want to seem as music fans, a lot of us would give credit to chance introductions and recommendations from friends, which led us to becoming fans of a particular artist. That's why I think we should take our cues from the scientific community and be humble and accepting of what we know and what we don't know, which can really be summed up in a quote that I came up with. Even though you can know so much, you can still know so little. So, bringing us to our first bit of music news this week, we have the new Amy Winehouse documentary that's come out this past weekend. It premiered at the famous Cannes Festival in May, but was only made widely available recently. The director, Asif Kapidia, who also has directed another film about a fallen icon, Senna, as in the Formula One racer Ayrton Senna, offers a humanizing insight into Amy as the artist and Amy as the addict and tabloid victim that she fell prey to. 
The film apparently offers a lot of home video and private footage and puts Amy's story front and center with no talking heads, although people still talk over the top of footage. She's always in every scene. Now, the film has not been without controversy. It's been denounced by her father, Mitch Winehouse, because he condemns the narrative and that it paints him as a villain. And it's difficult not to agree with the film when you actually do a little bit of research into the effect that he and her management had on her. Her most infamous song, Rehab, alludes to this issue with lines such as, they try to make me go to rehab and I said, no, no, no. And if I ain't got the time and my daddy thinks I'm fine, then supposedly it's okay to not go to rehab. And it points to a woman that was just manipulated by a lot of relationships in her life. In addition to her father, she had her husband, Blake Fielder Civil, who is said to have got her into use of heroin. And her management, while she was actually lying in bed after an overdose, actually spoke of putting her back out on the road to tour, saying that various other musicians had been able to function on heroin. It just paints a very bleak and sad downward spiral of abuse and control. And she's not the first female musician to have the sexist double standards put upon her, where looks are punchlines for news and her daily exploits are front page news. There's been other female artists that have succumbed to struggles with fame, such as Whitney Houston, Janis Joplin, and Billie Holiday, whose story parallels Amy's quite closely, since she was an incredibly talented jazz singer and also struggled with heroin and alcohol. In comparison, there was another documentary that came out recently about another troubled star, Kurt Cobain, and the documentary was called Montage of Heck. And in that same film, he also struggled with fame and drugs, but his struggles were mostly private, and there were never many front-page photos of him at the worst of his addictions, even though the public did know that he was a junkie. But perhaps you could say, well... At that time in the 90s, there wasn't smartphones and people walking around that could just take photos of anything that easily. But this issue is endemic to the music industry. Male artists such as Jimi Hendrix or Keith Moon or Jim Morrison, who died under suspicious or drug-related circumstances, get a free pass. And obituaries written about them have glowing achievements put up front with a brief mention of their addiction. However, women have to fight to get their achievements given credit. And we as the public are often also to blame for feeding on the scandal that gets created with artists such as Amy. And I'm the first to admit that I didn't pay much attention to her music in her final years in the spotlight. And only a week before her death did I decide to listen to Back to Black, her breakout second album. And I really found her music to be really incredible. And the lyrics particularly spoke to me. And on the weekend of her death in July 2011, I was actually planning to listen to her debut album for the first time because I thought of her second album was so great. Let's look back and see what she's done. And I remember going out for the day and getting a call from my mother in the evening saying, did you see the news? Amy Winehouse has died. And I just thought I had failed this precociously talented musician because I chose to judge her on the media's portrayal of her instead of focusing on just the music. And now it's too late because tomorrow I'm going to be listening to a dead person's album. That's just how I saw it. I didn't know what I had until it was gone. 
But since that fateful day, I've come to adore Amy, the artist. And fortunately, the film touches on a lot of that aspect of her career, starting right from home video footage of her at 14 years old, singing Happy Birthday for a Friend, right up to recording sessions that she had with Mark Ronson for the Back to Black album, where she delivers an amazing take of the title song, Back to Black, and gives us this haunting rendition of it, which probably was included in the final version of the song. And then at the end of it, she turns to Mark Ronson and says, oh, it's a bit upsetting there at the end, and gives a little laugh. Aside from her mesmerizing vocals, she played guitar and she wrote almost all of her own songs, infusing them with devastatingly personal lyrics, no editing for content. And that's seen on her first album, which was called Frank. Now you could see it two ways. She named it Frank because of her passion for Frank Sinatra or the sexy, confident frankness of the lyrics. Although she sang like a jazz diva, she carried herself like a punk rocker and infused a lot of her work with hip-hop, Motown sounds, especially on her second album, and cared deeply about the music that she was creating and the people that she was working with. One example of this was one of her final songs that she recorded was a duet with the famous jazz singer Tony Bennett on a duets album of his. And she was visibly nervous and in awe of being in the same room as him, let alone recording with him. So with all this in mind, I recommend checking out the documentary Amy to decide for yourself what you think the real story of Amy Winehouse was about and what it continues to be. Moving on to our next segment, we focus on a new release from alternative rock band Muse, their new album called Drones. Now, this album was released in June, but for the sake of programming, I consider it a new release. Now, the album has been made to be quite a back-to-basics exercise. For their last two albums, The Resistance and The Second Law, Muse have really focused heavily on themes of revolution and global conspiracies and shrinking natural resources. Musically, those albums experimented with electronic dance music or EDM and had a lot of orchestral parts and multi-suite symphonies. But now the band, in their own way, want to return to the sound that made them, such as 2001's Origin of Symmetry. And the producer that they've brought to the party is Robert Mutt Lang. Now, rock fans from the 80s, you'll maybe know him as the arena rock producer. This guy has done ACDC's Highway to Hell and Back in Black albums. He did Def Leppard's Pyromania and Hysteria, as mentioned in last week's episode. He also did the Cars Heartbeat City album. And then in the 90s, he met Shania Twain. They actually married. And the country pop star had huge crossover success with her album Come On Over, which he produced. Since then, he's lent his services to Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Nickelback, and Maroon 5. Yeah, not exactly same category, I think, as ACDC. But either way, his signature style is really layered vocals, big guitars, big drums, very polished sound, packed to the gills with noise, and is particularly good with a glam rock style of music. And Muse are known for that. They're the modern day queen, really, with very grand gestures that they make in their music and very operatic in their style. And Matt Langer sort of brought that all together in this album. Some of the highlights, I think, are the song Reapers, 
which has guitar tapping very much like Eddie Van Halen or Ingwie Malmsteen. And it blends the personal and the political in quite an interesting way. And that's what the album concept that they've chosen of dehumanization of modern warfare. In some ways, it could affect our personal relationships. And some of the, the songs touch on that. Album opener, Dead Inside, makes it in quite a ham-handed fashion that the person is dead inside or their lover is and perhaps this content could have been informed by lead singer matt bellamy's relationship with actress kate hudson who knows there are also a few interludes and spoken passages dotted through the album the first one being drill sergeant recalling the film full metal jacket where the sergeant is shouting at the the protagonist about that they're a psycho and that your ass belongs to me now, and at Sieg's into the song Psycho, which musically is very lumbering and loud, but relatively simple for Muse standards. But it's good to hear them just doing guitars, drums, and bass, and Matt Bellamy's operatic shriek on top of it. But the other interlude actually uses a sample of a speech given by John F. Kennedy, the U.S. president, and it talks about shadowy Cold War tactics. Other than that, the plot line gets a little confusing and isn't abundantly clear what's going on, but it's really just a front for Muse to tread between the sublime and the ridiculous, recalling aspects of their previous music, like in the song Mercy, I heard a looping piano part in the beginning that very much like the song Hysteria, even though it's back to basics, they still can't help have a 10-minute multi-part prog rock epic, such as The Globalist. And the final song in the album is actually based on a 16th century choral piece called Sanctus and Benedictus. Yeah, I know. Weird, right? And as the listener, we're treated to a choir of Matt Bellamy's all overdubbed singing My Mother, My Father my sister, my brother, my son, my daughter, all killed by drones. If the point wasn't made clear enough, drones and remote control warfare is bad, people. But enjoy the music at the same time. So yeah, those are some of my first thoughts on consuming the album a few times. I still think that there's a few missed opportunities that they could have done a bit better. But for now, we have a new Muse album out. So strap in and enjoy this brawny, brash, Orwellian breakup album of sorts. It's still a lot of fun. For this week's retrospective, I decided to have a look at one of my favorite hip-hop groups, The Roots. Now what's interesting about them is that they're a hip-hop band. There's not many of them around. Off the top of my head, I could probably think of another one, Gym Class Heroes. But what that means musically is that there's a lot of variety to their sound. And for the last few years, they've proven to be one of the most versatile bands around, being the backing band for Jimmy Fallon's late-night TV show. But an interesting exercise for me has always been to find the most appealing record of theirs. Which one would I recommend to a friend or to someone that doesn't like hip-hop or is only likes hip-hop for the lyrics? And with The Roots, you've got to sort of look at a few factors that make up a Roots album. There's got to be musical experimentation like their Phrenology album, which has a 10-minute multi-part epic where there's a whole jazz breakdown that can break up the sound of it. There's also random interludes sometimes. There's changes in production, like their Tipping Point album was a very radio-friendly sound. And for their last three albums, they've 
tried to uh, tackle the concept album idea. And this has marked a move towards more introspective, somber records. And the best example of this is 2010's How I Got Over. It's the perfect blend of all Roots albums, I think. Its musical approach tackles blues, soul, gospel, even a bit of funk. And to add to that palette, they've included a little bit of indie rock by having Monsters of Folk, a indie rock supergroup, perform the hook for the song Dear God 2.0. And it's the latest in a long line of great feature artists that appear on their albums. They always have collaborations. If you check the liner notes, each song always has a lot of people on it. For rappers, you have Dice Raw, Truck North. For this album, they have John Legend singing part of one of his own songs once again on the song titled Doing It Again. And for a concept album, it really has a great mood progression. For the first few songs in the album, you get a sense of despair and loneliness and disillusionment with the world. And it's a sort of middle-class anxiety that isn't often dealt with on hip-hop albums. And The Roots are about 20 years into their career. And it's great to see them not afraid to show humility and frustration with the circumstances that they face. And the middle part of the album follows a more transitionary feel, whereas the songs like Now or Never, How I Got Over, they really, even in the names themselves, you can see that the protagonist or the people involved in the songs are moving towards a feeling of positivity and confidence and expectance of the future, which are found in my favorite songs in the album, Doing It Again and The Fire. What holds us all together will always come down for me to Black Thought, the main rapper for The Roots. He just manages to condense reality into deftly delivered lines. Some of his verses on this album are some of his greatest that he's had in his career, such as On The Day, Right On, and Dear God 2.0. Now, when I first heard this album, that was the song that really stood out for me. It's quite spiritual. He has a conversation with God saying how he's coping with his status as a member of The Roots, where they were really busy taking over the house band position for Jimmy Fallon's show. And on Genius.com, which is a lyric website where people can annotate lyrics of songs, he actually annotated one of the lines in the song saying that they would finish recording at 6 p.m. for the show, and then it was straight to the studio to work on the album. It was a trying time for the band. But even then, they had the perspective to see that they're actually in a very good position. And it's a blessing to be able to be so busy with your work and have so many different things to be doing. And that's really shown on one of my favorite verses on the album by Fonte, a guest rapper on the song The Day, where he says, But now it's like I'm the last lap of the car chase, and I finally understand my right to choose. My preacher man told me it could always be worse. Even the three-legged dog still got three good legs to lose. And what I take from that verse and the album in general is that each of us have our issues in life, whether we're a homeless person in the street or a Grammy-winning hip-hop group. But it's just how you approach these problems and how you get over these issues that you're going to have. That's the true meaning of success. Well, that's episode two, Done and Dusted. I'd like to thank you for tuning into our show. If you'd like to subscribe, we are now on iTunes. I am The Eagle, and this has been Musicology with The Eagle. See you next time.